your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And for those of you who are visiting, uh, we looked at this passage of Scripture several months ago as I was going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We had some technical difficulties that did not get recorded. There were a number of people who did not hear it. There were a number of people who said, you need to preach that again on Easter. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm not trying to do a two-for-one. <laughs> I'm not trying to get out of work. <laughs> But this is such a significant passage, and I don't know that there's a more fitting passage of Scripture for us to look at and evaluate than this one on Easter Sunday morning. This is the holiest day of the entire year. In fact, what we celebrate as the Resurrection Sunday is the most significant event in all of history. Now, the world around us celebrates Christmas more fully than they do Easter. Christmas is about gift-giving. It's enjoyed because there's time off of work, there's time off of school, you get extra time with family, there's this spirit of friendliness and kindness that seems to permeate our casual acquaintances and gatherings. But Easter and the resurrection of Jesus is truly the most significant event in all of Christendom. Of course... If Jesus hadn't come as a baby, then he couldn't have gone to the cross, and he wouldn't have died, and he wouldn't have been buried, and he would not have been raised from the dead. But this day, Easter Sunday, is the reason that Jesus came as a baby in the manger, the first advent that we celebrate every Christmas season. So, As we think about Easter Sunday and what the message of the resurrection communicates to us, I found this essay, and it's been written many, many years ago. No one knows precisely who the author is and when it was written. There's many variations of it, but I'm going to begin our time together this morning reading this. And I hope that you'll listen to this, because this speaks to absolutely every single one of us today, without exception. There's a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals." He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of us will be his sermon. Quite profound and yet... Very true, very simple, very obvious, and yet we often fail to understand or appreciate the significance of this thing that we talk about, death and the resurrection. The inevitability of death is the reason that Easter is so important. And the age-old question, what happens when I die, is directly addressed through 
this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. So throughout the chapter chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing the issue of man's bodily resurrection. It was a very lengthy study when we went through this. It took five weeks to get to this point, and we're here again at the pinnacle of chapter 15 and the miracle of Easter as we look at the future bodily resurrection of man. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 15 verses 50 through 58. Here's what God's Word would say to us today. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is, excuse me, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so as we look at the victory of the resurrection, there's some very appropriate applications that you and I need to make, things that you and I need to understand as we look at the significance of what the victory of the resurrection brings to you and I today. Number one, the resurrection transforms. Verse 50 tells us, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now we know something about inheritance. Don't we? To inherit something is to have that something given to you. And here, the kingdom of God does not refer to His rule over the universe, nor of the individual human heart, but it instead refers to the eternal state of heaven. And so this is the inheritance, the, the eternal state of heaven. So in the previous section that we looked at many, many, many weeks ago, Paul was clear in making the distinction between the natural and the spiritual, or the earthy man and the heavenly man. And so here he repeats the truth, heaven is not for the perishable earthy man, but it is for the heavenly imperishable man. So Jesus went to the tomb as an earthy God-man, and he was raised as a heavenly God man. His physical body underwent a radical transformation through the resurrection. So the physical body that we know, excuse me, this physical body we know cannot inherit the imperishable body. It must be made different. And this is what the resurrection does. It makes our earthy bodies heavenly bodies, and that which is perishable then becomes imperishable. It is an external transformation, just as at the moment of our salvation, there is an internal transformation that takes place. It happens just like that. We're not aware that it has happened, but it has. And so when we are resurrected, when we 
encounter this bodily resurrection, we will also be changed in an instant. This is what Paul goes on to say in verse 51 as he talks about those who have not yet died when Jesus comes back to inaugurate God's eternal kingdom. Verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So as in most places in the New Testament, the word mystery here refers to something not yet previously revealed. And here, Paul reveals that not all will sleep or die. When Jesus comes back, there will be people who are alive and they will be resurrected in a bodily form. They do not have to die in order to be resurrected in a bodily form. So this references the return of Christ, and those that are alive when he returns will not have to die, but they will have to change, and this is the point that Paul is making here. We do not know and cannot know exactly how that will happen or what it will look like, but based upon what Scripture teaches us, we do know that it must happen and that it will happen instantly. Paul goes on to explain this in verse 52. He says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We referring to those that remain when Jesus returns. It will be an instantaneous recreation from one form to the other, from the earthy, to the heavenly. Now this is really interesting. Paul uses two words here to communicate this rapid process of transformation that will take place when we are raised. The first word that he used here is the word moment. It comes from the word atomos or atomos from which we get the word Adam. And in the ancient world it denotes that which cannot be cut or divided. It is the smallest conceivable quantity. So in today's modern scientific technology, we have the ability to split an atom, and that gives us the ability to have nuclear energy. But Paul's point here is that a radical transformation takes place in the smallest possible amount of time. In this time, our perishable bodies will be made imperishable. Now the second word that Paul uses here to describe this process is the word twinkling, or in the twinkling of an eye. Literally, the word twinkling in the Greek means to hurl, and here it refers to quick, rapid eye movements. The eye moves faster than any other visible parts of our body. Now anytime a pastor says something like that, people begin to test the statement. And so they'll start moving their eyes, or they'll move their heads, or they'll move their feet. I tried this. Believe me, our eyes have the ability to move more quickly than any part of our observable bodies. You can look from left to right, up to down, faster than you can move any part of your body. And this is the idea that Paul is talking about. The most radical transformation that you and I can envision will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, in the smallest quantity of time possible. Now, for us today, heaven, excuse me, for us today here on this earth, the most radical physical transformation that we can observe that takes place is the period of gestation to the conception, the gestation of conception to a physical birth. Now, in these nine months, This microscopic fertilized egg grows 
into a fully functioning human. And this transformation is absolutely amazing, Vinny. And Rachel, isn't it just amazing? Steve and Amy, Grandma, Grandpa, isn't it amazing? Melissa, Auntie, and Matt, Uncle, isn't it amazing? That before she even knew she was pregnant, this thing lived inside of her, and in nine months' time came out a fully functioning human with eyebrows and fingernails and organs and all of that took place, all of that development takes place over a nine-month period, but faster than you can snap your fingers or blink your eye, you and I will be transformed from earthy to heavenly, perfectly suited for life in eternity with God. Paul tells us when this transformation will take place. He says, at the last trumpet. Now, this last trumpet gets into the topic of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Paul does not develop it here as much as people want to think that he does. But he just states that at the last trumpet, when God pulls the plug on planet Earth and inaugurates His kingdom on Earth, we will hear this trumpet and it will be heard simultaneously all over the world and then instantly... We will all be changed. The dead in Christ will be raised, imperishable, and Paul tells us that this must happen. Verse 53, for this perishable, this perishable body that deteriorates and decays and dies, this perishable must put on the imperishable, that which does not decay, that which does not deteriorate, that which cannot die, and this mortal must put on immortality. Natural earthy bodies cannot inherit the eternal state and are not suited for their eternal home. Think about this. Think about how disappointing it would be if you were ushered into the presence of God Almighty to begin your stay with Him for eternity and you brought with you the very body that you inhabit right now. Wouldn't that be a disappointment? <laughs> Say, what did he say? I, I didn't hear that. And where are we going? I can't quite see the way. And boy, that's a long journey. I'm not sure I can really walk that far. Wouldn't that be disappointing? The reality is, is this earthy body will be instantly changed to heavenly. And it must be changed so that we can be perfectly suited for an eternity in the heavenlies with God the Father. So the first thing that we see here is the resurrection transform. The second thing that we see here is the resurrection triumphs. Verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now when our instantaneous transformation takes place, place death will be swallowed up in victory and that is because the, the resurrection triumphs over Death. Now, Paul quotes here from Isaiah 25.8, and here's what it says. It says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord 
has spoken. There's a commentator by the name of R.C.H. Lenski, and he writes this as an explanation of this truth. He says, death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do further harm. Think about that. Death is not simply destroyed so that it cannot do further harm. Death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our body lives again in absolute victory. This young man over here, Craig, who's visiting with us and his family for the very first time, When that young man goes to heaven, he will not go in a wheelchair. He will not go with the physical incapacity that he experiences right now. He will be radically changed, having undone all of the effects of death, and he will see and hear and speak and run and jump to the praise and the glory of God like he could never do on this earth. And that is the power that exists in the resurrection. That is the transformation that takes place for you and I because the earthy cannot inherit the heavenly. But we will be changed. So the resurrection teaches us about this change. Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah thirteen fourteen, and it says here in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is posed as a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is death, there is no victory. And death, there is no longer any sting because the victory of the the resurrection has undone the effects of that death. Death is the great enemy of God and of man. And through the triumph of the resurrection, we can simply ask, where is your victory? Where is your sting? When a bee stings, it leaves its stinger in its victim, and most of us have encountered a bee sting, and we know that it's very, very stingy, it hurts, and we want, with all we can ask for, to have that sting taken out of us, and for it to dissipate, death left its sting in Christ, and Christ bore the entirety of its sting, he overcame it through his resurrection, and also overcomes this sting for us through our own bodily resurrection in the future. And to make this clear, what he means, Paul says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Death itself is caused by sin, brought to us by Adam and Eve, and Paul articulates this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world through Adam, and death through sin through Adam, and so death spread to all men, each of us today, because all sin. And where there is sin, only where there is sin can death deal a fatal blow. Where sin has been removed, death can only interrupt the earthly life and usher in the heavenly. Do you see that? What was introduced into our world through Adam has affected all, and that can only be interrupted through 
the heavenly life provided through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul would go on to say in the book of Romans of 5.17, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Our sin in its entirety has been paid for by the blood of Christ. He encountered its sting in Himself. He is the one who has brought us this transformation. He is the one who has brought us this triumph. The power of sin is the law, the holy righteous standard of God. And when this law is broken, it reveals man's sinfulness. And all of mankind has broken God's law. And all of mankind is guilty. And all of mankind is under the power of law. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means absolutely every single one without any exception. But through the perfect obedience of Christ to the law... And because we who place our faith in Christ have been freed from the power of the law, we would rejoice in what we read in verse 57 here. And that is, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we could not do for ourselves, Christ did for us by dying in our place on the cross by literally being buried in the tomb and by literally being raised to new life through the resurrection. Paul would say this in Romans 7, 6, but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. This victory that we enjoy as believers in Christ is wholly attributed to the finished work of Christ on the cross in whom we place our faith. There's also a physical resurrection of the lost, however. Make no mistake about it. There is a physical resurrection of the lost, not just the saved, those who have placed their faith in Christ. Jesus said this in John 5, 28. I'm sorry, I didn't make it there. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to our resurrection of life Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Did you hear that? Jesus said that all will be raised. Some will be raised to a resurrection of life. Others will be raised to a resurrection of death or separation from God. Paul would say this in Acts 24.15, 
having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So the resurrection to judgment is not developed by Jesus or by Paul. It is simply referenced as a matter of fact. But there is a bodily resurrection for all, not just those who will be raised to a heavenly body to experience eternity with God in heaven. For those who have rejected Christ, their resurrection is one to an eternity of suffering, both physically and spiritually. Jesus said this in John, excuse me, in Luke 13. And Jesus will say, I tell you, I do not know where, I did not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. Do you understand what that means? That Jesus provides a victory through the resurrection that most are not going to experience. They're going to experience a bodily resurrection because all will be raised. But theirs will be a resurrection to an eternal judgment of an eternal separation from the presence of God. We look in our world today and we ask ourselves the question, how can it be any worse? How can it get any worse than it is? Well, I can promise you this. If the power of God, of His Spirit, of His presence were removed from this world that we live in, you cannot imagine the evil and the terror and the horror that would take place Everywhere, all the time, to everyone, there is a restraint that is being provided by the Lord in His grace to keep this world from fully experiencing what separation from God is really like. But one day that restraint will be moved and there is an eternity of separation from God that Jesus describes as one with weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've been in some pretty intense pain in my life, but I don't know that I've ever gnashed my teeth like the Bible describes. Well, number three on our outline, the resurrection teaches. We see this word here in verse 58, therefore, because of what Christ has done for us, having saved us from our sin, because of what Christ will do for us instantly through our own resurrection. We read verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So the resurrection teaches believers what our proper response to this incredible gift is, and that is service to Him. We are to be steadfast, settled, and firmly situated. We are to be immovable, not giving up or giving in. We are to be abounding, exceeding the requirements, overflowing with or overdoing. And the question is what? It is the work of the Lord. It is sharing the gospel, teaching the gospel, living out the gospel, knowing that our work in doing that is not in vain or is not meaningless. There is an eternity that is being impacted through our sharing and teaching and living out of the gospel. So I wonder, and I hope you'll wonder with me, how differently would the lives of lost people be 
if they knew the hope that Christ provides. You know, we live in a world that is without hope. Think about this. What, is, what do people in our world place their hope in? Is it the government? Boy, I hope not. You're... Is it the educational system? I hope not because it's not really about education. Is it the financial industry? Is it the success that allows us to have money in the bank? Is that what our hope is in? Is it in the fact that we're 30 or 40 and we haven't succumbed to the deterioration and the decay of our physical bodies? What is our hope in? See, hope in anything other than Christ is going to lead to disappointment because everything else is dying Everything else is just a shadow. It's not the real thing. How different would your life be if you had no hope in Christ, no hope of an eternity with God in heaven? I honestly don't know how unbelievers cope with life in this world. I I just don't know. Paul began this chapter with a subtle reminder to the church at Corinth of the gospel that they believed in, of the gospel in which they were standing. And he concludes this chapter with this exhortation that is designed to teach them what they are to do because of the gospel. The gospel is very simply the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The just for the unjust, providing us with the future bodily resurrection where the earthy will be made heavenly, perfectly suited to an eternity with God in heaven. And so every Christian would ask this question, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say this to you very, very quickly, very, very clearly. If you're here today and you don't know of this hope of which I speak... I implore you to give thought to your spiritual destination. What is going to happen when you die, when you stand before a holy God and He asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? If you can't answer that question, if you don't know what you would say, I hope you will seek someone out that you know and trust that can help you understand how to give your life to Christ so you can know this hope of which we speak so that your life can be radically transformed internally and that you would then inhabit the hope of what would be a future external transformation when Jesus returns. I hope you will do that. Make no mistake about it. He is coming back. We don't know when. He is coming back. And when He comes back, it's over. But we have the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord who has overcome the sting of death. Let's pray together. Father.